Hi, my name is John Light, and I've spent over 20 years working throughout all corners of the recruiting world. Our podcast, Drowning in the Tech Talent Pool, is a resource to help you stay afloat and get ahead of your competition. Welcome to Drowning in the Tech Talent Pool. I'm John Light, your host, and I have with me today Angela Ching Semeni, who is the Chief Human Resources Officer of Harvard Business Review. Angela, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. So you and I had a conversation a few weeks ago when we were uh, planning, plotting how we were going to go about this and, and have a <laughs> chance to, to connect. And I know one of the reasons that really interested me in talking to you of course, is to learn more about your story and your career path and how you ended up here in Harvard Business Review, but also from your perspective. I mean, you have the opportunity to see things a lot of people don't see until much later, right? That maybe go through an editorial process or you hear talk around the water cooler, as it were. But I'm really curious to kind of get your sense, uh, both for HBR as well as for the market in general, where things are going to be going over the next three years or so. Because when I look at it from a tech talent perspective, I see this massive shift going on in the marketplace right now with AI, generative AI hitting, hitting the market here recently uh, and it being very accessible. And I saw a survey or a study the other day that something like 65% of people in the marketplace in general aren't prepared to adapt and don't understand how to apply AI and how it's going to impact our lives. So I'm really curious. I know that's like a mouthful and a half, right? We could probably have an hour and a half right here just talking <laughs> about that, plus maybe just a snippet of how you got where you are. But that's intrigued me. We didn't get a chance to talk about it much offline. So I'd love if we could, if we could start there and, and see what develops. Sure. I'll start with my undergraduate career was at Cornell University in the Industrial and Labor Relations School. Graduates went into three fields. They went either into HR, went on to law school, or organized labor. And that was, gosh, 30 years ago. And it astounds me that I've now been in the workforce long enough to see unions start to make something of a comeback. Um, so that speaks a little bit to how long I've been working. But I don't think it's a surprise that we are where we are with organized labor. I think some organizations have lost their way and have forgotten that the most important asset, um, and I know some people take offense to that word, but the most com most competitive advantage they have is their people. Yeah. And those that take that for granted are destined to under leverage it. Um, and worst case scenario, actually throw their competitive edge away. And employees and talent want to say um, in how they make a difference. Mm -hmm. So now that we've got the convergence of AI, that there's a little bit under threat. Like, what are the skills that they have honed for bit. so long? Yeah, that they've invested <laughs> in hundreds of thousands of dollars in a college graduate degree to uh -huh. find that it has suddenly overnight suddenly become obsolete. For me personally, I'm a little bit at a crossroads, right? On the one hand, I'm reading articles about how we absolutely need to hit pause, that we need to stop and really think about the ramifications of this technology because it is doomed to wipe us out. And then to others okay. who think it's a natural progression of technology, that this one is perhaps a little bit more disruptive than, say, the calculator, but that like all other disruptive technologies, it's a little overhyped and mm -hmm. that with a little bit more time, we'll learn how to coexist with it. I've always been a little bit of a technology laggard. 
My dad has always been an early adopter, right? He bought the Betamax as soon as it hit the, the market, Betamax. right? Do you remember that, right? Um, and he invested in all the Betamax tapes, and then what? In a year, VHS was was the thing. Was the, yeah, the thing, absolutely. Right? So I'm I'm somewhere in the middle. I'm taking a little bit of cautious wait to see because I'm I am a little concerned about the existential threat it poses mm -hmm. to mankind, but also I'm concerned about the bias and prejudice that I'm still hearing um, about uh, that the um, that the solution propagates. And so I want to see it tested a little bit longer before I adopt it in my own organization. Yeah, you know, I've had a, a couple of really good conversations recently with, with people I'd classify as technologists, right? And, and some conversation with people who aren't, but who are like your dad, oh, it's, new, it's the latest and greatest. I got to get it and see what this, this does. And I agree with specifically with something you said a moment ago about overhype. I think the range and the possibility of AI is through the roof, but I think we a lot of people misunderstand it's still a computer system. And the old rule always applies, garbage in, garbage out, good in, good out. You're still dealing with adaptive algorithms, yes, and you but you still feed them structured data. They're not going out and capturing unstructured data and connecting two very disparate ideas, for example, and combining them unless you feed them those specific ideas in the hopes that it synthesizes something that's, I guess we could say, I would say synthetically novel. It's like when they have generative AI produce a picture and say, well, this is a work of art. Yeah, but it's really a synthesis of all the it's data, all the other original. pictures you felt you've, you've fed that's it, right. you know, and I think a lot of people don't quite get that, right? Everybody thinks either it's Skynet and we're all going to die, or it's going to replace me. I'm going to be displaced or replaced, and I have no hope for my future, so let me flee with despair. And I, I don't think either of those is correct, but I do think the range in between those two extremes, I think there's a lot of landing places for it, right? Um, we use AI every day in our ATS, a solution to generate not just lists of, of potential candidates for a, a specific role, but for outreach campaigns, including email, text, social media calls, the whole bit. And if you just took what the AI presented you, I'd probably get spam filtered out of everybody, uh, everybody's inboxes, because it's very spammy. It's like rah, rah, rah. It's, it's like I have a cheerleading squad writing it or something and everything's all squished together. So you have to go in and provide an oversight. And I want to say there was an article on the HBR website I read not long ago that posited the idea we're, we're moving from a creator economy to an editor economy. And I thought that was a very interesting take on it. I'd love to get your take on it. But when you think about what AI does and ideally could do, is all this tedious work that we do, take it off our plate or at least give us the outline or give us the, the guts, you know, the structure and we flesh out and clean it up of, of a document or a paper or an email or whatever it might be. But I wonder if part of the fear in all this too is that it is so rapid, right? When, when ChatGPT was available, it was, it was free for the most part. Of course, what they're doing is they're they're treating us all like drug dealers here. Have a little taste of this or like kids, like have this little piece of candy. Why don't you want to come buy some more? You know, and look at, the next thing you know, we're all going to be, I don't know. They all want us to be AI uh, dependent, hooked on it. Like it's sugar or meth, which it's not either. So don't get any ideas out there, but 
I'm curious what your take is on that and, and what maybe you've heard through the, through the grapevine or, or floating around that as it relates to the velocity with which we're, we're going to be forced to adapt this. You know, I, again, I've been, I've been thinking a lot about this. And one of the analogies I think about is climate change, which I believe to be a real thing. Mm-hmm. And scientists have been predicting this for decades. And we have failed as a global community to come together and agree on a way to confront and combat and reverse the destructive impacts that humans have had mm-hmm. on this home that we call Earth. And we haven't caught up yet, right? I mean, the, the doomsday clock is t- ticking down to when the climate change will be irreversible. And we still can't get our act together. I don't see how we could possibly get ready at which the velocity that AI is coming yeah. down upon us. I, I, it's difficult to remain optimistic that we will responsibly and uh, intellectually respond in a way where AI will only be for good. And we've, you know, we've heard about you know, some of the major players in industry coming out and talking about hitting pause. But what about the bad actors who will not hit yeah. pause? No, they're not going to hit pause. And that's, There's too much that's potential. A, that's a problem. That's a problem. So while I completely appreciate companies and organizations thinking about how AI can streamline their businesses, I've really been thinking about the much, much bigger picture and thinking about what are the impacts on humanity. And yeah. I kind of can't wrap my head around that. Again, for my HR team, I'm going to be a laggard adopter. I want to have confidence that's mm-hmm. that it is for good. You might have read about the MIT student who asked uh, ChatGPT to make uh, her profile picture make her look more professional, and the poster was Asian and it made her white, made her Caucasian, because that's what <laughs> ChatGPT oh, thought man. would be more professional, right? And so the creator of OpenAI responded and said, "Well, look, there's one in a million people who asked mm-hmm. ChatGPT to do that, and so just because the one result." gives you an undesirable answer? Do you malign the entire system? I don't know, um, but it has been repeated. So those are the things that give me pause, but also just the much greater question about what does this mean for the world at large? Yeah, and AI is such an iterative learner, I suppose you could say, right? It's gotta be fed data, but it's still gonna judge that data based on its algorithms, its parameters, and those can be adaptive you know, within its own set of parameters, you know, another layer of complexity in there, which is one of the things that makes it cool. But at the end of the day, you know, it's like a legal system. You can have the best legal system in the world on paper, but it's still populated by people. And people have biases. People have prejudices. You know, people have issues in general, as my late mother would always tell me growing up. She'd shake her head and just say, people are nuts. <laughs> and it wasn't necessarily an indictment saying that everybody, you know, needs uh, medicine or or help you know from a psychological or mental or emotional right. angle right but just because as individuals as in a sense sovereign individuals because what we think is what we think right now what we express can be different or it can be aligned to be the same but everybody has their own set of values and biases that spills forth and it's no different in a sense, although it can cause a lot more harm, but at, at its core, it's no different than the fact that you may like eggs in the morning that are sunny side up. I much prefer to have an omelet or scrambled eggs. I can't stand the yolk running all over the place. It's like it's getting away from me, and that's not fair. I don't like that. I don't want it to run off. 
that doesn't necessarily excuse people's behavior, what AI is doing, but I think there's so much for AI still to learn. It's like taking a little kid, you, they're born. And, and my, I remember my dad and I talking about this way before I had six children. So I, I got to see this over and over again. Baby's born. It's like there's a little hard drive with just a very basic operating system. They sleep and they scream and they cry and they coo and they look cute. So you don't want to offload this new piece of tech that just landed in your lap, right? So you start loading additional software in it by based on what they can sense, what they can grasp, what they can feel and hear and smell and taste and their stomach's full, their stomach's bloated, their stomach's empty, whatever it might be. And it takes years and years and years and years for those kids to get to a point where they understand really the nuances of social cues and what's right and wrong, be it from a legal or ethical or moral point. And I wonder sometimes if there's so many of these nuanced, highly nuanced values that each person has to contribute in, in, in the world at large, how long will it take AI to catch up with that? You know, because it can't empathize. It can't pick up the social cue of oh, the look on someone's face that I don't like where you're going with this versus, hey, I love it. It's kind of like I've got a one of our children, he's, he's going to be 12 later this year, and he's been struggling with figuring out how to be funny, how to tell a joke. You know, comedic timing doesn't exist for him. It's just like, no, no, that makes no sense. No, this is bad timing. Don't say it. So we were at uh, uh, my wife's family have been involved for many, many decades now with the Reno Rodeo. So we were at the rodeo with family earlier this year. We're having a great time. And he wanted to go ride a mechanical bull. He hadn't been to a whole lot of rodeos in his life. And he thought that would be really interesting, you know. And so I said, well, we're going to go sit down over here. That's in the, the Carnival Fairway. We're not going there right now. I said, Dad, please, it's only $10. I said, do you have $10? He goes, no. I said, well, you want $10, huh? So we're walking by this fence. On the other side of the fence are the bulls that they ride. These bulls, they're, the little ones are probably a couple thousand pounds. I said, I'll tell you what. You go through that fence and you tap one of those bulls on the nose and come back and I'll give you 10 bucks. And he said, well, I don't know, Dad. And I said, well, 20 if you hop on the back of one. So he's thinking about it. We go sit down, and a little bit later, he's, I'm going to go look at those bulls again. He walks back there, and about, I don't know, 10 or 15 minutes later, he comes and sits down. He looks very thoughtful, and he goes, you know, I've determined that bull riding is a low IQ sport. And considering our oldest son actually is going into rodeo and doing that sort of thing, it was the funniest. The timing was so great. His tone was so great. And when he saw he had everybody laughing, what does he do? He tries to keep going. We're like, no, man, time out. Stop. You've won. <laughs> you, you've won the humor game for the day. Don't say anything else. I think AI is a lot like that, but it doesn't have our level of sensitivity, right? Over what's right, what's appropriate, what's wrong, what's inappropriate. Well, that's and, interesting because that's exactly what we're asking self-driving cars to do. So right. there's actually a website somewhere where you're the AI in the car and you can choose either to hit a group of school children, a senior citizen crossing the street, a dog, a family, your loved one. And in that moment, you have to make a choice. And that's what self-driving cars will need to do. And that is yeah. absolutely a value judgment. Do we trust cars yes, to is. do that? I don't know. But what we're saying is we're trusting the programmer who's coding that AI. So to share our values. So it'll be very yeah. interesting, right? I mean, cultures that believe that senior citizens hold a lofty position in society may choose to swerve and hit a dog 
versus mm-hmm. the senior citizen crossing the street. I don't know. Um, in America, we tend not to treat our senior citizens so well, and yet we love our dogs. Be an interesting yeah. choice. So it is definitely a dilemma that will be reflected in the AI here in the States. Absolutely. And I think one of the challenging things for society to confront, for individuals to confront, is going to be in that scenario. Let's take that one for a moment. Is that ultimately that decision has to be made in the span of time that it's not even a heartbeat. You know, if you've been in a situation like that, even though it wasn't that specific one, you know, if a vehicle's moving fast, you don't have time to, hey, I wonder if it would be better if this or if that. You got to make the decision in that instant. And that's really where you find out what people are in terms of the habits they've developed and how they look at other people. You know, if you value the senior citizen, if you just value people, well, it's a no-brainer to go to the dog. But if you if your value system is different than that, then it could give you pause, which means who knows what you'll end up hitting. I mean, so being decisive based on values um, and morals and whatnot, I think that's, uh, that's just a whole other layer of complexity. A completely whole other layer. And it makes me wonder, and maybe you have some insight to this. Okay, this, this is a head spinner. Considering how far it has to go, but how fast it seems to be going down that road, what does this do for the job market today? So we've just come out of a time period, what, a year and a half, where tech firms have been just laying off people left and right. You know, there were uh, online spreadsheets you could go to, and it had lists of everyone who's been laid off at, at Facebook or at Twitter or at Google or at Amazon or wherever it might be. And there are admin people, and there were developers, and there were software engineers of all sorts and stripes. But now we've gotten to a point where I've, I've been reading that some companies are actually starting to let go of their coders, of their developers, because they're using generative AI to do 80, 70, 80% of the work, and they only need a smaller core team to oversee it, correct it, edit it, as the case may be. So where do we go from here? Because you know we're looking at potentially replacing entire classes, or the bulk of entire classes, of work that's available for people. And so I'm curious what, you know, if you've heard any rumblings over what's the future look like three years from now, and for somebody who's sitting in one of those industry spaces that requires something that's tedious, maybe is not creative as in something totally novel, but you know, you're synthesizing things and, 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 and that sort of stuff. I'm curious what you've heard in that regard. Well, I think every industry has to be reassessing what work needs mm-hmm. to be innately done by human. Customer service representatives are also being replaced um, because AI can respond to the, you know, 100 most frequently asked questions when someone calls in and they only escalate to a human, say, when it's a help desk two or help desk three type Mm -hmm. service level question. So I think every industry is going to see some impact, certainly in human resources, right? There are some of the repetitive, tedious, more administrative tasks. Resume screening is a prime example where it just looks for keywords, looks for key credentials. Um, And it screens those candidates out. So I think organizations have to think about, yeah, what's their commitment to reskilling or upskilling their workforce so that they can take better advantage of AI? Or do they just simply let that talent out onto the street? Which is, again, another reason for us to really give pause because AI will absolutely, absolutely take away jobs. There's no question. Three years just seems like three lifetimes away. So really hard to say, but I think that Right now, organizations need to be scanning Mm -hmm. their landscapes to think about which jobs are most vulnerable, 
We are thankfully all knowledge workers where original thought is important, is in fact critical to our work. There's probably some degree that can be automated by AI, but who's to say that's going to look completely different in a year? So more to, more to say, if yeah. I had a crystal ball, John, um, you know, I'd be as good as the Powerball winner of the billion-dollar jackpot. I was actually going to ask, is one of the questions I had in my head, is how do you see it impacting Harvard Business Review? Because when you think, okay, I can deliver a set of instructions, you know, please develop an outline or write an outline that covers X, Y, Z, and I want the result to be whatever I choose it to be. It kicks out an outline, and then you go in and basically fill in the blanks. You flesh out the content and all this. I could see that happening, but I just wonder at some point, you know, because when we talk about knowledge workers, when I hear knowledge work, it in my mind, one of the words that pops up is curation, not necessarily generation of something novel, of something innovative, right? But I know when you're doing a lot of what I call thought work, and you are how else can we apply this technology or how else could this develop or what different directions could this project take? I think that's a little bit, that's a different avenue, if you will, of knowledge work. You still need the knowledge, but you've got to be able to apply it and take it different ways. And which I think is the, the biggest, uh, one of the biggest hurdles with AI is how do we apply it? Do we so, understand it well enough to apply it properly as a tool? And so that's, that's where that question was coming from. So this is, this is ironically not an original thought, so I'm going to accredit it to the editor-in-chief of HBR, Adi Ignatius, who explained it this way to our staff in a recent meeting, which is, if you can remember Napster, and yes. they aggregated music for free, mm -hmm. and everybody thought that was going to be the new way people were going to access music. And then free got messy, and then iTunes opened up, Apple saw an opening, and people were extraordinarily upset that they suddenly had to pay 99 cents for a song or 9.99 for an album but mm -hmm. then they realized that you know what this is a legitimate copy i own it it's yeah. not some sketchy backdoor bootleg version and people now are used to it now we can talk about how spotify a subscription service is a different way of accessing music but the reason why people then adopted to the itunes store was because the quality, the credibility, the public mm -hmm. trust in that platform. So for us at HBP and at HBR, what we want to make sure is that we continue to honor that public trust, that people know that when they come to us for content, it is well-researched, it is vetted, mm -hmm. it is original, it is cutting edge, it is not some run-of-the-mill, prepackaged, synthesized gobbledygook that they got out of ChatGPT. And in fact, I think... Can you I use might, that word next time? I yes, you may. You may. <laughs> we had a digital subscriber call into our customer service line and say, hey, I think there's something wrong with my access. There's these two articles that I really I want to download, and I can't mm -hmm. get to it. And eventually, we discovered that she discovered that she found these articles through ChatGPT, who completely hallucinated them. The articles did not exist. But the title sounded very wow. HBR-ish. It had authors. It had a URL link and the whole nine. But they did not exist. And so we no have kidding. to preserve the public trust in uh -huh. HBR that people that when people pay for our content they are getting something unique and valuable. So See, that's what we have to think about. You hit on I think one of the biggest challenges we're going to have with AI and already are experiencing and that's intellectual property. Yes. And that was really the issue with Napster or those other peer-to-peer -peer sharing services is that you've just stolen the incentive of the artist to create to innovate. 
So when we go buy an album or buy a specific song because we like it, yes, it brings us some value that we maybe can't quantify, but you know what the artist and what it takes to produce it, the time that is put into it, all the you know technology where it's applicable, so on and so forth, it has a cost associated with it. And if the artist can't make a living producing this stuff, then why do it for, you know, at such a broad, a big level. So we have to compensate them. And I think one of the biggest challenges with AI is going to be, we have had the Googles of the world and I'm not picking on them just because it's because they're big, but they've been collecting data on people all around the world for a long time. And they own that data. You no longer own it as an individual. And so that, that connection, that intersection, which is really, it's, it's like these two highways that are adjacent to one another running in parallel of data flow. I think one of the biggest barriers we're going to run into is the fight between the individual to control their data and the organizations who want to control all of the data they can because it gives them so much more to feed into the AI. Because once we get the generative AI adapted and it's out and and it becomes a more mature technology, what's next? Well, I mean, they're already working on theory of mind, you know, an AI that can interact with you at an emotional level that can empathize. Let's say, good luck with that. That's a tough one. But they need data to do it. And it's got to be data structured in a certain way for the AI, for the models to be able to digest. So I think that, and it ties in with intellectual property, those are going to be some of the biggest things we got to deal with because I think we have to protect the uniqueness of the individual. I don't know... I know for a fact I could never hit the notes or look as good, frankly, as Whitney Houston. Wouldn't happen. No way. For a number of reasons. Number one, because she was just, she had just the absolute spot on whatever it was, it factor that made her a superstar and gave her voice, you know, stratospheric qualities and the ability to entertain. Are there other people out there who could in the world today? Probably. I mean, there's what, 8 billion plus people. I'm sure someone can. It's like, uh, what was it, Journey? They couldn't find a replacement lead singer. After their guy, was it, was it Perry, Steve Perry, I think his name was? He blew out his vocal cords or injured him. The guy they found at the time, my understanding was in the Philippines. Didn't he's still speak. touring with them. I saw him. He's awesome. He's amazing. He's, he's like him. And my, what I understood is that when they found him, while he knew the lyrics to every song, he didn't speak a lick of English conversationally. So they found this person who was completely different than the person they had before. But somewhere along the way, his genetics and experience and, and passions and interest and work brought them to this intersection where, man, these guys could fill in for each other. I mean, it's phenomenal, but it's unique. And we have to remember to discuss and understand and talk about the uniqueness of individuals, I think, uh, as we go forward with AI so that we don't get lost behind it, if, if that makes sense. You know, and I think that's going to be one of the challenges in the, the employment market with, with labor. And not only is the application or the reapplication of talent, how do, we, how do we reapply it? What makes sense now? What new frontiers open? And how do we get somebody from the older way of doing things into this newer way? Not to self-promote too terribly, although I will on occasion. Uh, we just today, we dropped our, our first episode of Drowning in the Tech Talent Pool live on LinkedIn. It's on our website at sabertooth.com forward slash podcast. And the gentleman we have on was the third employee hired at Amazon India when they started up there. And he ended up later in his career being a CTO for Sears, which, you know, 150 plus year old company. And everybody knows the story. I mean, Sears and Roebuck, I guess, in a sense, was Amazon 
50 or 80 years earlier, uh, as far as America was concerned. But when he arrived at Sears, they still used mainframes in 2019. Mainframes, they weren't in the cloud. And it was so different from Amazon where you could take a post-it note, write a title on it, stick it to your door, and people would apply uh, on the tech side because it was in fuego, it was on fire, it was doing great. Sears, you got this old company, a lot of history, a lot of legacy. Nobody knew if it was going left, right, up, or down. And it turns out that they had one person in the entire company who understood how those mainframes worked. And so Mo had to go in and rather than, hey, how do I acquire new talent? How do I take this one person, A, not lose him, because that would really make a mess of things as we move to the cloud, but B, how do I bring him along with this, what's for him a new technology and help him prepare for the rest of his career, preferably with us doing a similar role, but with new technology and new knowledge. And I like the fact that instead of developing, hey, here's your upskill program, it was a personalized, individualized upskill program to help him reach his career goals. And that's hard to find, you know, a company or an executive willing to do that on an individual basis. I think that's, it's so genuine. It's, it's, I admire it. And my sense is there's going to, have to be a lot of it, but there's going to be so much change in a market. The temptation is just going to be, well, Hey, go learn something new. How do I do that? What new do I learn? How do I know I'm going to like whatever positions are available for me? You know, and it's stuff like that. And you may get a kick out of this idea or not, but. I think it's creating, has created, and will continue to create for some time, a massive wave of entrepreneurialism. And people who think they've got it figured out, how do I figure it out and turn it into something? I had a candidate from late last year, it was not a successful candidate on the search we were working on, but he went all in and developed his own AI and niched up in the cannabis industry. Where his AI is now powering retail dispensary kiosks so a customer comes in and the puns and the idioms and, and the humor could real jokes could really write themselves. Basically he drives them higher. They <laughs> drove their sales higher at least, but like 37 or 38%, you know, when it was first uh, uh, deployed. But how cool is that? That some guy who was self-taught programming, self-taught machine learning, self-taught uh, as far as developing his AI did it all himself. I mean, I am looking forward to seeing what this world holds with a serious savory dash of watch your backside so that Skynet doesn't blow it up uh, sort of thing, you know, uh, to do it right. When you sit from your chair right today, Angela, what setting AI kind of aside as the main topic, I'm curious to learn HBR, Harvard Business Publishing, huge reach, right? You have a massive network. You have books out there. You'll have articles going out, you know, tons of research. I quote HBR on a regular basis talking to clients and candidates. And I quote okay. studies by memory from 2015 timeframe. Uh, there's one in particular I remember where it was a study of who applies for jobs out of the entire candidate pool of, you know, that's available. And it was something only like 27% at any given time of available candidates will ever apply for an actual position online. 27%. So it leaves you with what 73% out there who in theory would apply, but they're not going to apply online. But out of that same study group, 87% would take a phone call from a recruiter and actually talk about a position exchange information, you know, which tells us that the talent market's not static. You got to get out and swim in it. Uh, part of the concept behind drowning in the tech talent pool. And you got to be able to get 
uh, to the depth of water you need to get to, you know, in the part of the pool you need to get to, and so on and so forth. And I'm curious, when you look at how the market has been changing with the layoffs and AI coming on, what do you think the future is going to look like, the short-term future, when it comes to how we approach identifying and attracting talent out of the marketplace? How is it going to change? You know, I don't, I don't know that fundamentally it changes that much. I mean, I think there's still going to be space for active outreach, um, mm-hmm. as well as, you know, waiting for passive candidates to hear your, your spiel. I do believe that from a DEI perspective, employers should get sharper and sharper at understanding why a richer mosaic of a talent base is good for organizational mm-hmm. performance, despite what's happening in the legal environment. That's my hope. And I think those organizations that prioritize truly unique talent will win both in bottom line and also in the culture war in terms of providing a hospitable environment where people can really thrive. So I still think there are enough organizations who don't understand that diversity is linked to productivity. And those organizations that double down on that will continue to outperform. But in terms of technology, I think some of it is just old fashioned making a human connection. Right. And it does come down to that first conversation. There are plenty of organizations that outsource that first step to Mm -hmm. a one way video conversation. Right. They tee up questions. The person responds and the recruiter at some later time downloads and watches the video. Mm, I'm not up for that. I want to hear. Thank you, by the way. (laughs) Right. I want to hear the person's voice. I want to see if they have a sense of humor. I want to see how they think on the fly, not response Mm -hmm. to a list of static questions. And I think that explains why, generally speaking, we do a really good job of hiring for people who can be successful. So I don't think anything will permanently replace humans. And when it does, I think then I'm ready to retire. You know, (laughs) then the function will become AI resources and not human resources, right? I believe natural intelligence, right, will always be what makes us unique, not artificial intelligence. There you go. I 100% agree on that point. I've written blogs. I've done interviews and whatnot about at at the end of the day, we are so individualized that when you do try to paint with a broad brush with an advertisement, for example, to attract people, if if it doesn't appeal to me as an individual, I'm not going to apply. Even if you're sitting back on, on, on the other side of it going, yeah, but it pays more or it's, you know, a better location or whatever it might be. Those things, for me personally, those are secondary to the adventure itself and the value that's driven from, man, I've got to go grow. I've got to learn something new. I've got to do something I haven't done before. I've got to leave a footprint. I tell candidates that all the time. There's so much value that you can't quantify in the journey and the process. I wonder sometimes, though, I think as far as talent acquisition goes, I think there are a lot of tasks that are going to be relegated to AI. I think it's going to happen. I already use it for producing like outreach campaigns and doing static searches and databases or online or whatever it might be. But I totally agree with you that the specialization in recruitment of the human touch, you could say really in any sales function that's people to people, I don't know that that's, I don't know that, that can easily go away. Just like, you know, an attorney who not only knows the law, but they happen to know how a judge likes to run their court, that can't go away. It, you know, it, it just can't. But speaking, 
Well, we, we, we do hope not. The attorneys hope not, too, I think. Right. That's right. That's right. I'm curious. I think a lot of what you all do, HBP and HBR, I think it's phenomenal. I follow it. I know a lot of people who do, and it comes up in conversation. It may not be directly, hey, I read this here, but if you're at lunch talking to a colleague or even a competitor, you know where your things are coming from. But I wonder, now that you are kind of at the pinnacle, in a sense, uh, in your chosen space, what's next? I mean, you're not going to wait around for AI to take over the world before you retire. I'm sure there's got to be other challenges that you are considering taking on, maybe not outside of the, the Harvard Business universe. But I'm just curious, what upcoming projects or challenges or missions do you see that, that, that excite you and, and make you, make you want to get out there and, and conquer the world again? Because that's one thing I've found is, is I think we're both of the same generation. At least we made some Betamax came up earlier, so we got to be pretty close. And so I'm curious because as I've gotten further in my career, I have found myself going from a superficial sort of curiosity where there's so much for me to learn that I end up trying to be very broad. And now I tend to get much more focused and try to dig into the nuance and the why behind things, not just what and the how, but really the why people move a certain direction or technologies move a certain direction and so on and so forth. So I'm curious from that perspective on your career, what's, what's exciting you to, to get out of the bed and, and tackle in the mornings? So beyond, you know, my, my day job, which I love, I absolutely love the mission of this organization. The people that I get to work with are brilliant and talented and um, we're all motivated to do good in the world. But what I have found sort of as my next act is really paying it forward. I just got back from a conference that is sponsored by a group called Ascend, and it is North mm -hmm. America's largest professional network for American, Asian, Pacific Islander professionals. Okay. And coming through the ranks, I didn't see very many senior executive Asians. And so now that I am, as you say, at the pinnacle of my career, I'd like to be intentional about what it was that I did in my career so that I mm -hmm. could reach this point and what it is that I can do to inspire and help others who share that aspiration. So I've been teaching, I've been speaking, I've been accepting invitations to podcasts because I think it's important. You can't be what you can't see. And um, Oh, there's a good, I haven't heard that put that way. That's a great yeah, way to put it. Right. Um, and as it, in a recent LinkedIn post, I had, I am the 1%. Um, which is that fewer than 1% of Asian American women make it to the C-suite. And um, that's a really disheartening statistic. And I would like to help change that as much as I can. And so I've been getting out and giving advice and counsel and sharing, quote, my wisdom to others who will listen, mm -hmm. um, because I find that incredibly gratifying and energizing. So in my oh, wow. spare time, and that's what I've been doing. Well, that's uh, that in and of itself. That can be a full-time job. It can. You know? And it's not something AI, I think, can readily do, right? Because no. it's my mistakes, it's my failures, it's my wins, it's my victories, it's my human sponsors, my advocates mm -hmm. and allies who made that possible. That's not some chat GPT script that told me what to do in my career. So I like to, I like to drop those nuggets um, when I can. Let me tell you something. Somebody out there appreciates them because they've heard them directly from you. And... <laughs> That, you know, we come into this life with nothing, no stuff. We leave this life. We're not we've taken stuff Can't with take us. Can't take it with you. Yeah. But the value, the echo we leave behind for people who are maybe not following our exact footsteps, but have similar destinations, similar goals, can be pretty impactful. 
can be pretty impactful. And I don't know what else really we can ask for, but to know that we're delivering value and impact to people uh, in ways that are meaningful to them. You know, I may not necessarily approve of a, a child's choice in college majors, right? One of my kids. Yes, true story. It's happened. I believe you go get the most technical degree you can handle as an undergrad, then you get a job, and then you can go pay your way through your master's program if that's what you want to do, studying whatever you want on your nickel. But support them as hard and as fast and as completely as they can because at the end of the day, whatever they choose to do, now of course, I tell my kids personally, if it's legal, ethical, moral, you know, don't do anything crazy or stupid, don't blow up bridges, blah, blah, blah. I want them just to succeed and have a great life. And when you take that attitude and you apply it not just to your own kids, but maybe you apply it outward to like, I have no dog in the hunt or, or horse in the race if you go to the right or to the left. But what I care about is that you're able to have a chance to recognize your dreams and your aspirations. It's a thumbs you're up. Good. Now, That's right. I went to Texas A&M, so we could do the thumbs up thing, but I hear it's not the thing to do anymore. So, but <laughs> hey, I'm stuck with it. Okay. It's a matter of habit. Angela, I've really enjoyed the time that you shared with me today, and I'm going to absolutely make sure that that uh, David gets this, uh, David won, and has a chance to uh, <laughs> listen to it, because I know he's a huge fan as well, uh, the former CEO there at, at yes, Harvard Business Yes, he's done Review. so much for us, yes. Yeah, and he's, he's a fantastic, he's such an interesting guy to talk to. Maybe I need he to was actually, He actually would have been the first Asian executive that I would have worked for, but he retired before I got there. No kidding. Yeah. He retired before you got there, yep. but you still know him. Yeah, he interviewed me, and then, uh-huh. uh, and then he, he, he left us. <laughs> but did he, have, did he have an impact on you? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, and that's what we all want right there. It, I, I don't need the gold watch. I don't need the placard. But somebody out of the blue that comes up and shakes your hand or hugs you, which feels happened to me once and it felt really random i'm like okay why is this person hugging me i don't know what's going on and i just said hey thanks for something that i had said a year prior at a at a conference uh where i delivered a message and, and this sort of thing and i, I just kind of sit back and go man that's pretty cool that's that's what we're working toward yeah it's great to make money along the way and have recognition and accolades but that that's the stuff that gets me out of the bed in the morning so and it sounds like we're of a similar nature in that regard so I, I wish yes. you absolute best in, in the mission there and, and, and recognizing what you want to recognize, the, the value impact you bring to other people who are climbing the ladder or walking up the stairs, as it may be. Or so, I think I heard somewhere, I read somewhere, I would misquote where, that when you're at the top of the building, you've taken the elevator to the top, make sure you send it back down. Ah, I like know? that. And, and, and bring other people up. So, Angela, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. And I hope... Not only the absolute best for you, but I hope we have another conversation in a few months as we see the market mature a little bit and evolve about what's next. Because if either of us ever have the chance to answer that question, that'll be like hitting the Powerball. It would. (laughs) Thank you again. Thank you. You've been listening to Drowning in the Tech Talent Pool. This podcast is sponsored by Sabretooth. Sabretooth improves the quality of hire and speeds up the time to fill specialized machine learning data engineering, data science, and developer roles, stretching tech recruiting budgets further by bringing the precision of retained search and the speed of contingent search to the market in one complete solution. Find out more at SBRT.
Light2th.com and follow me, John Light, on LinkedIn. Thanks for listening.